Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast. Today we're excited to bring you a very special episode from the field where GLD director Professor Ellen Lust discusses Malawian traditional authorities with Dr. Bonface Delani, senior lecturer in political science at Chancellor College of the University of Malawi. Dr. Delani also works with Pan African Research Network Afrobarometer as the fieldwork operations manager for Southern and Francophone Africa. He is also the research director at the Institute of Public Opinion and Research, commonly known as IPOR, based out of Malawi. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for taking time from a really busy schedule. Um, and we're actually lucky to be meeting today at IPOR, um, where we're running a project together. But I wanted to talk to you today about some of the work that you've done on traditional authorities and traditional leadership and what we can understand about those. So. Um, maybe you can begin by just describing a little bit about the uh, traditional leadership and the traditional authority system in Malawi. Okay, thank you. It's a pleasure actually to talk to you about this topic um, on traditional leadership. Uh, traditional leaders play quite a major role in Malawian, uh, Malawian life. Uh, actually, some people will argue that traditional leaders play a much more influential role than the uh, political and the other elected leaders, um, in, in large part because these are people that are seen to be very close to the local communities. We have uh, four levels of traditional uh, leadership in Malawi, uh, with the bottom level uh, with the village heads. Essentially, these are local leaders that uh, govern small geographical areas, mostly um, you know, in, at least in theory, uh, you know, with people belonging to the same ethnic group, so maybe a group of clans. Um, and then uh, a collection of uh, village headmen are governed and overseen by a higher level of traditional leadership called uh, group village head. Uh, as, as the name of course suggests, the group village head oversees um, the activities of a collection of village heads. The number of village heads that fall under group village headmen uh, vary from place to place. In, in some cases, I know of cases where a group of village head is overseeing maybe just two village heads, but in some cases, they actually oversee quite a large number of village uh, village heads. Um, and then, you know, the, the group of village heads as a collection are overseen by a higher level of traditional leadership called the traditional authority. And sometimes also, this is the level that we call chiefs in this country. So actually, the way the chiefs in Malawi, you, you, one has to be, you know, to be careful the way you use it because it might mean exclusively the traditional uh, authority. Uh, the traditional authorities, as I said, oversee the works of a group of village head, uh, the village heads. The, the, the two levels, the traditional authority and the group of village head, also play a kind of a quasi-administrative role in the development and local government structures. In Malawi, you know, in terms of our governance administration, of course we have the, the central government and then we have regional uh, administrations with the three regions sometimes they're split into four the northern region central region southern region and sometimes the eastern region although sometimes the eastern region is treated as part of the southern region and then below the region we have districts so the district administration um under the district administration the district is subdivided into these traditional authorities and um and at, at 
in terms of the governance structures uh, to, to use this kind of bottom-up approach to development, we have what are called village development committees. Although the name says village development committees, they actually operate at the group village head level. So the group village head uh, coordinates the activities of the village development committee, which in, you know it has several functions, but primarily to identify development needs at the local level to feed in into the government planning system. Uh, so the group of village head uh, sits also on the village development committee and then above the village development committee we have what is called the area development committee which operates at the traditional authority level and the traditional authority then is also responsible for coordinating the activities of the area development committee and then the so the village development committee comes up with the you know, identifies development priorities and needs at the village and group village level, then these are passed on to the area development committee, which is coordinated by the traditional authority, and then they consolidate everything and then submit it to the district administration. And now the district, the district commissioner, for example, will be appointed by the state, right? By yes. the government. Yes. Now are the village heads, the group village heads, and the, the traditional authorities, how are they appointed? Mostly the traditional authorities are hereditary institutions. Um, we have different, you know, inheritance practices depending on ethnic group as well as the kinship patterns. Most patrilineal societies in Malawi, uh, the traditional leadership is passed on to the male son. Um, whereas in matrilineal societies, the inheritance of traditional leadership is through the matrilineal line. So the you know the the sister of the traditional leader the children of that sister are the ones that are eligible to inherit the traditional uh, leadership from their uncle so to speak um so that but again you know this varies from place to place and from time to time but in you know as a general rule that's how it goes so we have those three levels the traditional authority the group village head and the village head usually these are the three levels of traditional leadership that most malawians interact with or are familiar with but above that we have paramount chieftains uh, and the paramount is you know in in, in in technically they are um a kind of a tribal king one would one would say uh, so we have seven paramount chiefs one uh, paramount kiungu for the Ngonde people of northern Malawi, and then uh, Paramount uh, Chukulamaembe, uh, who's the Paramount Chief of the Tumbuka people of, again, Rumpi District in northern Malawi. And then we also have Paramount Chief um, Mberwa, who is the Paramount Chief of the Ngoni people of northern Malawi. So the Ngoni is actually uh, maybe the, mo the, the only unique group in terms of ethnicity, because we have two, two Ngoni groups that, uh, and, and each has its own paramount chief. So Mberwa is the paramount chief for the Ngonis of northern Malawi um, that ironically speak mostly Chitumbuka um, and then we have paramount chief Gomani for the Ngoni people of central and southern Malawi uh, and then we also have uh, paramount uh, Kawinga who is the paramount chief for the for the Yao people uh, of southern Malawi and then paramount um, we had Paramount in Golongoliwa for the Lome people, but he just passed on a few weeks back. And then we also have Paramount Chief Lundu, 
who is based in southern Malawi, but technically is the paramount chief of the Chewa people. Now, the Chewas are the largest ethnic group in Malawi, but they are mostly based in the central region of Malawi, and yet Paramount Lundu is based in southern Malawi, and is supposed to be the paramount chief of the Chewas. Um, I, I, I'm highlighting this case because most Chewa people in the central region of Malawi actually recognize uh, Kalonga Gawawundi, who is the Chewa uh, paramount king based in Zambia, uh, and but he's the, the, the he's the overall king of the Chewa people of Malawi, Zambia, and Mozambique. And and can you tell tell us a little bit about first why that is, but also why it matters? Well, it matters it matters a lot because it also says a lot about the influence of Lundu as the paramount chief of the Chewas. Um, so. The, the Chewas are a matrilineal ethnic group, and as I said, they are the dominant ethnic group in Malawi. The story is that the, uh, the, the, Chewas, uh, the Chewa king was called the Kalonga, and the, the Chewa queen was called the Nyangu, and that was the queen mother. Uh, the queen mother, sorry, not the, 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 the queen, but the Chewa, the, the Chewa king mother was, was Nyangu. But because the, the chieftaincy among the Chewas being a matrilineal society goes through the, the, the female line, um, some of the children of Nyangu as, as kings were assigned specific responsibilities. So some were, you know, traditionally the medicine people. Okay. Um, Lundu, in his case, and I think Lundu, as Kalonga Lundu, were more responsible, like they were the you know, the, the, the fortune tellers. If he rains failed, for example, Kalonga Lundu would go and offer sacrifices uh, to pray for the rains to come. Okay. So they kind of also had that kind of priestly role. Um, so, but, but at some point, Gawawundi was the youngest son of Kalonga, uh, the king of the Chewas. But he, then he decided to migrate to Zambia, uh, to eastern eastern Zambia, I think it is a place called Katete in eastern Zambia. And 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 when Kalonga Kawawundi moved to Zambia, he moved with his mother, Nyangu the Queen Mother. And because the king the kingship goes with the female line, then it followed that it, by default, because the Queen Mother was living with Gawawundi in Zambia, he became the paramount chief of the Jewa people. But of course, uh, you know, there are always disputes over this because he was also the youngest son of the, the Jewa king. And similarly, when we talk about influence, and I want to come back to exactly what these paramount chiefs can do, the Ngoni you said were divided, right? That they have one sort of a, a paramount chief for the north and a paramount chief yeah. for the central and yeah. southern region. And I just want to understand a little bit about why that might be the case and what it means. Okay. So for us to understand, I think, this part is because the Ngonis originally, they are part of a subgroup of the Zulu people of South Africa. Uh, my understanding, again, my history for the Zulu, the Zulu people is, is not as good, but my understanding is that the, the Zulus actually also migrated to South Africa from someplace in East Africa. Okay. They, they migrated to South, to South Africa, and then some of those groups decided to migrate back northwards. So you have the Ndeweles in Zimbabwe, for example. There is a group of the Zulus. You have the, the, the Tswana people in Botswana, the, the, Swaz, the Swatis in, in Swaziland, you know, in Mozambique, you have the Shangans. Uh, the Ngonis moved northwards, some settled in Zambia, mm -hmm. 
Okay. Uh, actually, there is also another Paramount chief in Zambia called you know Paramount Bezeni, and then there's a, there were two groups of Ungonis that moved into the area that we now know as Malawi. There were, we had what are called the Jerengonis. This is a group that is settled in the northern part of Malawi and they have their own Paramount chief. Another group uh, called the Maseko Ngonis settled in southern Malawi as well as central Malawi and these are the ones that are governed, I think, under the Paramount chieftaincy of uh, Gomani. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense what a Paramount chief might have had as a role in, in the times of migration and sort of mm. in the times of establishing kingdoms. I'm curious to understand what the role of the Paramount chief is in sort of in, in everyday Malawians life yeah. today? It's, it's a very good question because in, in our studies we actually find that a lot of ordinary Malawians don't even know who their paramount chief is. And, and even if when they do, if you ask them what is the role of the paramount chief, they have really no clue what the paramount chief does. And, and, and I think this is also maybe understandable from the point of view that the paramount chief is someone who is so distant from the ordinary person. <laughs> the most ordinary people, as I said, are dealing with their village headmen, their group of village heads. So, you know, maybe even the traditional authority, they might know that we fall under this traditional authority. But in terms of day-to-day -day interaction, they're even so distant from the traditional authority. So, you know, if you look at our, you know, some of the research we've done, you actually see in terms of awareness of who the local leaders are, almost everyone knows who their village head is. Um, maybe fewer people will know who their group of village head is, uh, and then maybe people, maybe an, an average number of people would know who their traditional uh, authority is, but very few would know who their you know paramount chief, chief is. Now, in terms of the roles of the paramount chief, now it's it's also tricky because the paramount chieftaincy system, part of it is also political. So we have what are called gazetted paramount chiefs. These are chiefs that paramount chiefs that are recognized by law. Okay. And then over the years, we also have some ethnic groups that don't have a history of a paramount chief. And the government has encouraged them to identify people as their paramount chiefs. So like the, the, the chief, paramount chief Kawinga, for instance, I think he's only been a paramount chief like two or three years, two or three years at most. Because the Yao people don't have a history of a paramount chief. These, these are basically, this is a group of people uh, that have, yes, common origins. You know, might speak the same language, but they also have a kind of an egalitarian, you know, traditional leadership structure without that kind of hierarchy of a paramount. You just have a group of traditional authorities and then a group of village heads and the village heads. The same thing with the, the, the Lomwe people, uh, again, uh, they don't have a history of paramount chieftaincy. So government has tried to encourage them to create and establish these paramount chiefs, but as you can imagine, it has also created quite a lot of conflicts in terms of who should be the rightful paramount chief among a people that don't have a history of the paramount chieftaincy. Um, but by and large, I think there are some paramount chiefs that would a lot of influence uh, and, and uh, especially among their peoples, especially those that have a, a, a solid tradition. The Ngonis, for example, uh, they, their paramount chiefs are, are really highly, highly regarded. Uh, they, the Tupuka people uh, as well. I think 
you know, Paramount Chief Lundu has always been a Paramount, but he, it was again a political decision to make Lundu the Paramount Chief. Uh, so, you know, in terms of their roles, you know, honestly, even if for me, I, I, I have little understanding of what exactly they, they do, do. <laughs> rather than maybe coordinating <laughs> their traditional leaders. Now, you know, they might be responsible for, um, you know, recognizing who the rightful heirs for traditional authorities should be when there's a succession. Uh, but still, I mean, there are also traditional rules for determining how one becomes a traditional leader and, and, and how not. So the, it's, it's basically a ceremonial role. That mostly it's the roles that the Paramount Chiefs play are very, very ceremonial. Okay. Yeah. And, and they don't, I mean, I'm sort of thinking about why the, why the government might be interested in trying to get them to have Paramount Chiefs and have this kind of hierarchy. Um, you know, the cynical part of me thinks that it's for mobilizing votes and mobilizing political support for different programs, etc. Mm -hmm. Is there a part of that that they play that role, or how does that work? Well, I think, you know, in, in all our elections, governments obviously always try to use the traditional leaders and help them to mobilize. Not just governments, I think all political parties for that matter, both in government and opposition, try to use uh, traditional leaders to help them mobilize the locals. But uh, the, the people that might have the more influential voice are those, the, the layers of traditional authority, traditional leadership that ones. are at the lower level. Yeah. So the village heads, the group of village heads, and maybe the traditional authorities. Of course, the voice of a paramount chief carries a lot more weight, at least, uh, you know, in the public platform. But uh, whether ordinary people are listening to them on the ground, it's, it's, it's doubtful. Indeed, you know, we know we've also done some research uh, where we're actually working on a paper with colleagues, you know, Happy Kayuni and Mike Chasuka, where we're looking at the influence of traditional leaders in, in, in you know, voting decisions. Mm -hmm. And we did survey and we asked Malawians whether, you know, traditional leaders seek to try and influence their voting decisions. And by and large, most people say, yes, they try. But again, a large majority of them say that uh, they would not, not you know, make their decisions based on what their traditional leaders tell them to, to vote. I think only a very, very tiny uh, proportion, maybe around 2% of Malawians say that they would vote according to how their traditional leaders have advised them to. Interesting. And that's even regarding the village head, who we think might yeah. have a lot more influence on an everyday... Uh, yes, Malawi. I think, you know, because there's... You know, people will actually give me go far, as far as tell you that well, the vote is a secret ballot. No one should be able should be telling me how I should vote. Yeah. And even if they even if they tell me how I should vote, I can tell them that yeah, yeah I will do as you t you say. But then uh, they will go and and vote their conscience. So that that's actually you know on, on, on our side as researchers, we find that actually that's something positive that the Malawians really are, use, are looking at the vote as something that they can use to really, you know, to express their own wishes in terms of who they want to govern them, rather than in terms of just using it uh, to, to vote for people that some people have told them to vote for. Uh, and, and of course, because of this, I mean, there's, there's also a lot of corruption involved with the traditional leaders, that uh, traditional leaders will actually try and solicit support uh, and funding, especially and resources from government uh, or from opposition parties, you know, under the guise of uh, helping you to mobilize people uh, to vote for particular candidates or parties. I think in the last elections, for example, I think there was a group of traditional leaders that wrote to the president that, well, 
we know we have come up with a budget and we've mobilized ourselves we want you to go around the country to mobilize people to vote uh, for the president for the for the incumbent president and the ruling party uh, and, and of course people just laughed them off interesting yeah now if i'm thinking about it from the citizens point of view okay so you just said that I, i'm a citizen i'm not particularly interested in what even my village head tells who he tells me to vote for or who she tells me to vote for in some cases um what do i care about my village head for what do i expect from my village head so as i said i mean the village head plays quite a big role at the local level at the communal level um, so we, we, we also one has to understand the role of traditional authority traditional leadership essentially is that we have a government that has limited reach in the country. Um, a lot of public services are not available at the local level. Uh, so the traditional leadership is a kind of a proxy for the state at that local level. So if ordinary people have disputes, for instance, over you know, all sorts of things, including land. The traditional leader is the only authority that most people have access to. Uh, so if there's a dispute, we want that resolved, the court might be, you know, hundreds of kilometers away. Whereas the, the court, the traditional leader, is a walking distance from, from us and he, we, you know, he or she can summon and, and mostly, unfortunately, you know, most of these positions are filled up by men. I think there's only about 11% of who the traditional leaders in the country are women. Um, you know, so the, the traditional leader will summon, um, you know, if, some, if someone accuses me of, 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 you know, in a dispute, they'll summon both of us, you know, both parties to the dispute and then hear the case and make a determination and, and then, you know, if one is wrong, they will tell them, you know, what kind of penalty to pay. And the, the issue is resolved there and then. Um, if people really want you to communicate their development needs, um, the, the member of parliament might be inaccessible. Uh, the local government councillor might be inaccessible, you know, both physically as well as in terms of language. The traditional leader we will speak the same language and understand the issue. So people feel more comfortable to talk to the traditional uh, leaders. So if you look at the public opinion survey data, for instance, you find that in terms of the contacts that people make with the you know, different levels of, of leadership at the local level, the traditional leadership really stands up there uh, as the most frequently contacted uh, office at the local level. Members of parliament, local many councillors, public officials are very rarely, if at all, you know, contacted. In terms of trust, I think you know you also see that people express a lot of trust in their traditional leadership, in maybe some partly also in religious leadership. But elected leadership, including the president, are always way down there in terms of public trust. Uh, but, you know, that's one side. But the traditional leadership also plays quite a lot of traditional roles at the communal level. You know, in terms of land ownership, for instance, most Malawians, as you know from, you know, our study in 2016, most Malawians don't have title deeds to their land. Uh, the, the authority that we will recognize that this is your land is the traditional leadership. Um, at the village, at the village, at okay. the village level, at the village head level, yeah. they will be the ones that we don't know what are the boundaries of your lands. If I wanted to to sell any any piece of my land or all or, or, or all of it, 
the people that we can actually vouch that this is my land is the traditional authority, the traditional leader, because you know the village head. Because no one, I, I don't have. No one else knows. Yeah, and I don't even have any document that I can say these are the boundaries of my land. Um, so they also play that that key role. Indeed, I mean, if a lot of the land in Malawi, you know, most of the customary land. In what the law says is that it is owned by the president, but it is managed at the local level by the traditional uh, leadership. Uh, so, you know, they also have other, you know, customary and traditional roles that they play. One of my favorite ones is that you cannot go, you know, to, to bury your site in this country, a graveyard. You can't just go there without the traditional leader or the village head giving you the go-ahead that yes you can go and usually they might go themselves or delegate someone to go open the the gates of the graveyard for you uh you can just do that on your own so if if you also want to get buried at some point when you die <laughs> then you better pin good books with your village, with your village head. sort of from birth through life to death yes. they can and, and actually i know cases i mean there was there was a case in 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 one of the districts in the southern part of malawi no neno where there were disputes over traditional i mean of, over the village in this case it was di disputes over the traditional authority, there was some contestation on who was the rightful heir. So some of the village heads sided with one claimant to the throne and another group sided with another one. And there was a funeral in one case. They were refused to be buried in in their traditional graveyard because they, with the they had decided with the wrong uh, the wrong claimant to the dispute. So, it, you know, it can get that bad yeah. and, and especially in a difficult time like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's amazing, actually. Now, I'm just wondering, we've mentioned a little bit about, okay, local councillors can be of a different ethnicity than than an individual. Yeah. Because in a sense, the local councillor uh, districts, we should mention, actually cover many villages. They're not simply local in the way that I think a lot of times we think of as a local yeah. council. Um, but then also, within villages, and of course within sort of groups of villages, we also have various ethnic groups or, yes. or people. So, so if I'm a, say if I'm a resident, I'm from a different ethnicity than my village head, or if I'm a village head and I'm a different ethnicity from my group village head, I guess my first question is, does that happen and, you know, do we have a sense of how often? Um, and then, do, does that create conflicts in itself, or mm -hmm. how should we understand that? Yes, it, it does happen a lot. Um, there's a lot of intermarriage, you know, inter-ethnic marriage in Malawi. Uh, I think in the paper that we, uh, I've done with, you know, with Adam, uh, Adam Harris and, and Jeremy Horace and Happy Kayuni, we actually find that, uh, you know, inter-ethnic -marriage, inter marriage rates in Malawi is more than like 30%. So it is. It is pretty quite. It is, it is pretty high. Um, I think, in theory, the tr the village head are the original settlers in a place. So they will. It would have been a family, uh, you know, a small a clan, and that grew. But of course, over time, they would have been joined by people maybe from other ethnic groups. Um, and in, in in most cases, though, you'd you'd end up with the village, the traditional leader, whether village head or group village head. At least, you know, coming from the majority ethnic group in that area. Uh, but in in some rare cases, it also does happen that the traditional the, the 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 leadership the traditional leadership, you know, comes from a minority 
ethnic mm -hmm. group in a particular area. And, and of course, this does create a lot of conflicts and, and tensions, especially in terms of perceptions of legitimacy of the traditional leadership. Um, I, I, I know, for example, in, in their districts in the central region of Malawi, especially Doha and Nchisi, that have uh, Ngoni traditional authorities, but presiding over Chewa, uh, predominantly Chewa people. And in some of those cases, actually, you have the traditional authorities in Goni, but the group village heads and some, most of the, the village headmen are actually Chewa, not uh, not not uh, not in Goni. So in terms of their loyalties, actually, they might be much more loyal to a different traditional authority than their own traditional uh, authority. And of course, that also follows with the people themselves. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think there are many cases where we've heard that, you know, people are, now people rise up to say, no, you're no longer, you're, you're no longer, you know, entitled to be our traditional leader because you come from a minority ethnic group. Uh, in, in some rare cases, we've even had cases where uh, someone like at the Paramount, you know, chieftain's level, you know, the Lomwe people, for example, when uh, the late Pinguam Tarika established the Lomwe Paramount chieftains uh, some years back, it then the, the first Paramount, the first person to be appointed was uh, Paramount Chief Nkumba, uh, Paramount Chief Nkumba from Mango, from Parombe District, and he he you know it ended. It turned out that he was more Yao than Lomwe, and yet he was the Paramount Chief of of the Lomwe people, and of course a lot of Lomwe people. Uh, you know, Lome, Lome chiefs, you know, Lome traditional authorities just ignored him that, right. well, you, 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 you're not Lome, how could you be our, uh, our paramount, uh, our paramount chief? Um, you know, they, they also, you know, as I already pointed out, some of these, uh, you know, paramount chiefs of people that uh, don't have a history of paramount chieftaincy, um, and and maybe the case of Lundu as well is another interesting case because he lives predominantly among what the the, the Manganja ethnic group okay. uh, in southern Malawi, and yet he's supposed to be the paramount chief of the the Chewa people, and most Chewa people just ignore him as their paramount chief because they don't recognize, they don't really acknowledge him as representing the Chewa. Of course, technically the Manganja people are some group of the Chewas. But because they are so, they are split from, they've been split from the Chewa people for so long, and they've actually become much more closer to the Lomwe people that most of their traditions and practices resemble those of the Lomwe's and, and maybe the Sena people of southern Malawi than the, the, the Chewa people. So, you know, then the, the authority and legitimacy of such leaders, you know, always comes into, into question. I think also one of the interesting things that your comment points out is the extent to which some of these things that we think of as tradition and therefore as sort of stagnant or stable actually are changing, right? I mean, mm. you know, we see see the sort of both the creation of paramount chiefs, but we also see, you know, sort of the traditions changing and, yes. and different sets of um, you know, practices changing, right? Um, oh, yeah. And I mean, maybe I can, if I can weigh in on that, I, I think there's also a lot of politics that is involved in determining who even becomes a chief and who doesn't, um, and who's this, who becomes like the senior traditional leader in the hierarchy. It's as much political as it is traditional, and as you rightly point out, it's also something that has evolved and changed a lot over time. 
um, in in I think in 1974, if I'm not mistaken, the Malawi Congress Party held a convention. Now Malawi was a one-party state at the time, in in Mzuzu, uh, in northern Malawi, and the, the 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 president had asked the delegates to discuss what the government or the state should do with the individuals that in the courts had rebelled against the, the regime of, you know, Kamuzubanda, the life president at the time. Right. So the delegates thought this was actually an invitation for them to be open, and a lot of them suggested that, you know, we should forgive them, bring them back. And the, the delegates included traditional leaders and traditional chiefs. Then the, the, the senior most chief of the Chewa people in central Malawi was Chief Masi. And he was one of the delegates, and he spoke in favor of forgiving the so-called rebels. But meanwhile, it turns out that, you know, Dr. Banda was listening to the debates, in, I guess, in the state house in, in, in Mzuzu. On the third day, he came to the convention very furious that these people were actually saying that they, these people should be forgiven. Uh, and, 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 you know, on the spot ended the, the chieftaincy of Umase and appointed a new person completely that uh, Chief Kaumba, uh, I mean Kaumba of Kasungu, as the senior paramount chief of the Chewa people. You know, it's actually a sad story that, you know, Umase was even actually told to walk from Mzuzu way back oh, into yeah. Kasungu, which is about, I don't know, maybe two, three hundred kilometers from And Mzuzu. not flat ground either. Not I mean, flat that's... ground <laughs> and no longer as a chief. And right. that, uh, you know, so you, you have this kind of, you know, creation and recreation of traditional authority. The late uh, Paramount Chief in Golongoliwa, who was, as I said, he just passed on a few weeks back. He was the Paramount Chief of the Lomwe people. He was originally just a mayor village headman. In, it was only in 2014 that in Golongoliwa was elevated to a group village head. In 2015, he was elevated to a sub-traditional authority, uh, falling under another traditional authority. In 2016, he was <laughs> elevated to a traditional authority. In 2017, he was elevated to a paramount chief. If we all could rise so fast. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I wish. That would be good. Yeah. But you know, and you're talking about sort of people, which is true, right? Yeah. But we also, I mean, you you had mentioned earlier today this example where we've seen sort of a, a change in terms of the lineage that will that will be passing the you know kind of who will become the the chief. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes. So, um, you know, as I said, you know, in 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 the, in, in our earlier conversations, matrilineal societies. Uh, the chieftaincy is passed on predominantly through the niece or the nephew of the departed uh, traditional leader. That's that's the general rule, um, and that, that applies to most matrilineal societies in Malawi. And and I think I would say two thirds of the ethnic groups in Malawi are matrilineal. In the patrilineal societies, traditional leadership is passed on through the male son of the chief. But this has also created quite a lot of conflicts. You know, the, the, the position of a traditional leader comes with a lot of benefits. So there are a lot of people that will give up even their jobs as a, as a professor as to go <laughs> and take up a position of a traditional leader. So because of some of these conflicts, the Tonga people 
in 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 northern Malawi, uh, the Tonga people are kind of interesting in that they are closer. They they're kind of in the middle between the north and and and, and the south and, and in the central region. The north is the northern part of Malawi is predominantly patrilineal. The southern Malawi, I mean central and southern Malawi, are matrilineal. So in terms of succession among the Tonga people, uh, for generations it was matrilineal. Uh, similar to the Chewa people, because some of the chiefs were were were, were also of Chewa heritage. But he, two years ago, um, the Tonga people decided that to change these practices because it had it was also seen to bring in quite a lot of conflicts. As you can imagine, if you're passing the lineage through the sister and the chief, you might have multiple sisters. Right. So how who, how to decide who gets to inherit? Uh, it can be contested because in some cases some families will say, "Oh, you are family, you know, you 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 are clan. You produced the the traditional leader last time. This time it has to be our turn." Um, so this has created quite a lot of conflicts. And I think for the Tonga people, they decided that you know maybe to avoid these problems, the chieftains say, "We are Tonga people. We are." You know we are patrilineal, so they think. Uh, then the chieftains should pass through uh, the middle line, uh, and the sons should succeed. But again, if you read the Malayan history, and and one of our colleagues was telling us earlier today that even the Tumbuka people that are seen as the 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 quintessential patrilineal society, they were not always patrilineal. At some point, they were actually matrilineal, and then through interaction with other ethnic groups, they embraced patrilineal. Uh, traditions and now everyone has, thinks of the Tumbuka people as as patrilineal. Uh, so you know the Tonga people for them now we actually seeing it in real time. You know shifting from matrilineal tradition practices in terms of inheritance to patrilineal, uh, and who knows you know what the inheritance patterns will be in 200 years time if we are to come back. Uh, it might be so. They might even try and introduce, you know, voting. And you, you, you recall also from our study in 2016 that village in 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 Deza where the traditional leadership inheritance succession is through elections that the locals people vote who their traditional leadership. Is. So these these institutions are continuously changing. They are not static uh, by any means. Yeah. No, I think one of the things that really fascinates me about about this whole sort of set of topics here, right, is that, you know, we think of ethnicity as being sort of static and, and homogenous in mm. these sort of, you know, kind of mono-ethnic communities with a single village head and then it sort of neatly stacks like mm. Russian dolls, right? And then you unpack it and realize that it's actually much more varied and much more heterogeneous. And the same thing with the sets of practices and institutions, yeah. right, that we that we do see a lot of variation. I mean, in the change that you're talking about, I think it was in 2018, right? I mean, it's not a long time ago. It's yeah. very recent that, yeah, that we start to so. see these. And I think the third thing that really strikes me is that, you know, we think of, and I even my own work talk about sort of non-state or social institutions and state institutions but really there's that you know kind of intersection between these right that you know these are uh, sometimes uh, paramount chiefs that are being created by the state and sometimes they're being recognized state by the state and sometimes they're not being recognized by the state and there's, there's an entire kind of interaction yeah. which leads me to the last sort of set of things I want to ask you about which is to think about how they affect you know, development, which we often think of as being sort of run by the state, and democratization, which of course has been sort of the you know, kind of Malawian, you know, recent history. So, 
if you can give us your your thoughts mm. on those. Well, I, I, let me be honest. I mean, I've, I've always had my doubts about the relevance of traditional leaders, but there's also no doubt in my mind that you know they are an institution that um, is much more grounded. I mean, compared to the, you know the the state institutions at the local level, and it's an institution that you know, enjoys a lot of public confidence and trust. Um, in, in, in some of our works, we've actually, uh, you know, done a surveys of traditional leaders in Malawi just to see if we can match the, how the traditional leaders really conceive development needs at the local level and how that, whether that matches with the, the priority needs of local, local communities. And we find that you mostly, there's a perfect match. What traditional leaders think are the priority needs requiring a government intervention at the local level actually are also similar and almost identical to what local people are you know local people uh, consider to be you know priority for minutes and this shouldn't even be surprising because they are at the local level they're much right. more in tune with the locals than the you know, the elected leaders most of whom when once elected they basically relocate to the capital and he only reappear maybe five years, you know, four years down the road when it's time for for a fresh election. Um, so they 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 there is that. Uh, so in terms of development, uh, they actually help government to identify and consolidate development needs. Mm -hmm. And and that's actually why you know a few years back, government introduced you know a policy to pay traditional leaders. So in, in some ways they've become civil servants yeah. they're part of the state i mean they they get a very very modest honorarium especially at the local you know at the local village head level uh usually they they paid like 10 it was five thousand departures which is about um five about about six dollars i think now it's it was bumped it was doubled to ten thousand departures which is just slightly about maybe about twelve or fifteen dollars. It's not. I mean, that is month per month. But they 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 even hardly get paid on time. I mean, sometimes three four months will pass before they're paid. Uh, but that's the village head level. And then you know the group of village heads they are paid. I think a slightly higher you know honoraria than the traditional authorities. The paramount chiefs you know leave it up as as civil <laughs> servants. Um, you know, so, so but they they do play that role at the local level, no doubt in my mind. I think part of the problem, though, is the democratic implications because, you know, the the state then feels one less pressured to provide the services uh, that it is supposed to provide because the traditional leadership uh, takes only that role and kind of shoes the state. Um, so, you know, if you look at, say, the justice system, you know, courts are far apart in this country and very, very remote to most ordinary people. Um, even when people go to these courts, they, they consider it to be alien, that the practices that they're there, they're not, you know, the kind of conceptualizations of justice that most ordinary people would have. Uh, the traditional leadership, you know, practices and offers a kind of, you know, justice that he, you know, makes sense to an ordinary person. Um, unfortunately, it also means that the state, the, the ordinary people, don't have to put any pressure on the government to provide these services because they're already there, at least in, in, in some form. Um, 
But what I also find really problematic is the fact that the traditional leadership is by and large hereditary. And, the, and, and, and I think, you know, our, our political leaders have, you know, over time tried to adapt some of these, you know, leadership, you know, traditional leadership characteristics so that the people would look at them as, you know, these leaders those that should also stay for, for, for so long. So if you look at our history in terms of long-saving leaders in, in, in Africa, and, and even now, you know, we've seen... Um, the, the movement towards abolishing a presidential term limits. Yeah. They appeal to that notion of a traditional leader who is there for life. And so if, if a traditional leader stays for life, the president is the traditional leader for the whole country. Why shouldn't they also be allowed to stay for life? So when they campaign for removing term limits, a lot of people can sympathize with that because they're looking at the traditional So if you look at you know, the early generation of traditional you know, African political leadership, they always tried to, to claim some of these kind of traditional leaders' identities. So in Kenya, Nze Jomo Kenyatta will, fly, will have his fly whisk, which mm -hmm. is a symbol of a traditional leader. You know, our own, you know, Kamuzubanda, it was the same thing with a fly whisk. Um, you know, Kenneth Kaunda, you know, t as, uh, adopting all these titles in you know, Kwame Nkrumah, he adopted the title of a chief, um, you know, in 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 in, in Botswana, which is, is considered to be one of the, you know, long long established democracies. The Kama, the Kamas who have you know the first president of Serese Kama, and then uh, you know his son also became president. They are traditional chiefs, so you know people look at them both as political elected leaders in the modern state, but they appear. To the sense of traditional that it comes with the traditional leadership and in, so in my view i think it has a very negative effect on the growth and, and and consolidation of democracy if democracy has to grow and consolidate maybe the traditional leadership might have to die <laughs> that's a i think that's a, a mildly provocative statement <laughs> and a good place to to thank you for for taking time again to to give us your thoughts and your wisdom on this i really really appreciate it thanks thanks, thanks ellen for this time and opportunity <laughs>